0: Thanks be to God. Indeed. Some people have learned the response. It's good to have you here. Let me welcome you to Church at Five uh, on this first Sunday in November. It's good to see so many faces here, some new faces, many faces I know and love, and uh, faces I'm yet to get to know. Great to have you here. Let me just add my invitation to um, what Antonia said in the announcements now. Uh, mark down Sunday the twenty-fourth of November in your calendars. That's three weeks away, Yannis. Not four, dude. Pressure. It's going to be a big Sunday uh, in the life of the church. Um, it is the last Sunday before Advent, and so it's a lot. It's you know before the whole city is just overrun with pletzian and gluvine. We want to have a t- have a chance to have a normal Sunday, but a celebratory uh, Sunday. The topic for the Sunday will be Christ the King. Jesus is our King. And that's why we'll be celebrating uh, in the morning a baptism uh, in the morning service where people coming forward to be baptized will obviously be acknowledging that Jesus is their king. We'll also uh, have the morning service will have a guest uh, preacher and so all of you, uh, just as the whole church is invited in the evening to the worship night, all of you guys are invited to join us in the morning for that service of baptism and uh, our plan is then to open the the new rooms that have been renovated on the other side of the street for lunch and or coffee all through the afternoon until uh, the worship night kicks off here at church at 5 at 5 p.m. So it's going to be a great, great Sunday. Um, I was talking to some friends today about... Um, yeah, just about how we can spend our Sundays together as Christians, that we don't have to have just a very short service the middle, at the beginning of the day and then kind of the rest of the day is our day, but it's the Lord's Day and it's good to spend, at least at times, the whole day in the company of the Lord's people in fellowship with them and in his presence. So we hope that the 24th of November will be a great Sunday and a Sunday to remember. Alrighty, we heard... Uh, the verses tonight. This is our third message in the book of Colossians. And if you remember two weeks ago, I said I was really excited uh, to study this book of Colossians on Sunday evenings um, here at Church at Five, and I am excited. Um, But tonight, I almost feel a little bit heavy with the message that I have for you guys, Um, a message that I was just changing around before the service. Because I just I felt that the Lord wanted to wanted me to say something else or, or place the focus uh, somewhere else, and it's um, it's a it's a phrase that you'll hear I think fairly often, or certainly if you grew up in the church that um, you should never preach a message to other people that you haven't already preached to yourself, and uh, that's certainly a wise piece of advice um, for any teaching within the church. We become hypocrites when we teach other Christians things that we. Don't haven't taken on board ourselves, but I, f- I feel in a particular way that this message this evening is also uh, directed towards me. I don't know if you guys know that kind of spiritual experience, when you see, when the Lord is putting something on your heart, um, perhaps for others, maybe a group that you lead, a small group, a home fellowship, or whatever, but you also really realize, well, oh, that's, that's really for me as well. Uh, so that's certainly the case tonight, and... Um, we we heard the verses. We're going to be speaking tonight about a mature, what is it a mature Christian church? What is a mature Christian church? And uh, the verses that that um, Richard read for us from Colossians one nine through fourteen are basically Paul's Paul's outpouring of his heart in prayer for the church at Colossae that they be a mature Christian church. So before we jump into the verses this evening just think about what what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase a mature christian church what is it what would be the marks of an of a or the the characteristics of a mature christian church and think about it also um in a personal way um i had my birthday last month and another year has gone by um and yeah i don't know um, I don't want to be facetious, but I feel like I'm getting into that level of my, or that stage of my own life where birthdays are not really the kind of thing I want to celebrate anymore. You know? The kind of thing I'd rather forget. I've got one guy joining me over here in that. Um, but yeah, it, it does offer you an opportunity to kind of think back, well, there's another year of my life gone by, and the older you get, the more you think back and think, wow, that was so long ago at that period in my life. I see so many people here who are probably in their mid-twenties, and I kind of think that I'm in my mid-twenties, but I'm not anymore. And it gives me an opportunity to think, well, have I matured in these last ten years? I hope so. I hope so. The Bible says that grey hair is a sign of wisdom. That's, not, that's a proverb. That's not a universally true statement. It's a proverb that should be true, and uh, I hope it will be true. Well, I hope it is true for me, and uh, will be true for you also. But think about your own maturity. Do you sense... In your Christian life, um, that you're on a trajectory, that you're moving forward in maturity, in depth of faith, in the depth of the knowledge of God, in the way you live your life. Are you seeing yourself put to death old habits, habits that are keeping you from serving the Lord? Are you seeing yourself put to death sins which are destroying or, or disturbing your relationship with God and with others? And do you see that not only in your own life but in the life of the church? That's what we want going to be looking at this evening. What is a mature Christian church? So we read um, verses nine through fourteen, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay the focus on verses nine and ten, as opposed to so nine and ten a, a being the first half of that verse, and then we'll see how far we go, and I might make a few brief comments on the, the other verses depending on how we go. So. Yeah, let's uh, let's start into the message proper this evening. Um, let me just read again to you, therefore, verses nine and ten a, so that they're just fresh in our minds. And there we have them, indeed, in the ESV. I'll be reading, however, from the NIV, and uh, maybe that's a help to you as you hear these verses. You can compare them to the ESV on the screen behind me. So Paul writes, Colossians one nine. For this reason. Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So Paul has given thanks, that was last week, Paul has given thanks for the Colossians response. The Colossians, that is, this church of people at Colossae has been created by the preaching of the word and by baptism. So faith and baptism. A church has now been created in response to the gospel. And Paul is thankful that this church has begun to bear fruit, fruit that comes from the gospel. And he now he now shifts his focus from looking back on what's happened. And he shifts his focus onto what's now sort of um, the, the the important thing. The important thing is that this Colossian church continues on the way they have started. That they that they grow, that they mature together. And again, you can think about this. In, in terms of our church, our church here was not planted where the gospel had never been preached before. The gospel has been preached for a very long time here in Germany. But our church started some 25 years ago, in two months' time, and we can be thinking about: how, Are we are we seeing the fruit that comes from the gospel here? Or we can think about: um, Just came to my mind now, church at five, a congregation planted just three years ago in October of 2016. Are we seeing the fruit that comes from gospel proclamation? I think we are. I'm very um, very thankful for what God has been doing here at this church in the last three years. And now are we willing to hear Paul's word about what is, what is, um, what is the phase that we are now entering into as a church and as a congregation, namely that we continue on the way that we've started out, that we grow and that we become mature. Now this sentence, just to back up for a moment, all the way through from verse 9 to 14 is one long sentence, quite complex in Greek, and uh, it's broken down into three parts, and I've read you now the first part, which is Paul's prayer for the church at Colosse, and I want, I want it to be Paul's prayer or, or Jesus' prayer for our church here this evening. So, firstly, notice that Paul is praying for churches, very simple, uh, very practical, Paul has never been to Colossae, he knows a few people in the congregation, and yet Paul's life as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, as a Christian, is characterized by praying for churches. That was his ministry that he was devoted to, prayer and the word. And I think, I don't want to dwell on it too much tonight, we've had a series here about prayer. Um... But just think of this: Paul's in Rome, many, many, many miles away from Colosse. He's also got churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, and Athens, and Ephesus, in Galatia on his mind. And yet he can write, and it's not meant as just Christianese. It's not meant as some nice sentiment. He can write and say, "From the first, since the day I've heard of you, from, I've heard about you guys. I have not stopped praying for you." And so, now can, I, can I ask you, based on that uh, sentiment? Will you pray for your church? Will you pray for this church? Let us be following in the example of the Apostle Paul here and cultivating a lifestyle and a habit of prayer. Now, it's a phrase I'll come back to tonight. I want prayer here to be a habit of grace. That is um, not a duty and obligation first and foremost that we feel uh, forced into or pushed into but rather some a habit which is established in our lives based on grace. Because we have received so much from the Lord, because we have seen the Lord's heart, that therefore we respond to this grace in the way we live our lives. So can I ask you to be praying for your church, for this church? But to, to really get us into the focus for this evening, look at what Paul prays for here. Um, I've been to many prayer meetings in my life, and uh, rarely have, have I heard this kind of prayer at a prayer meeting. Maybe I've just been to the wrong prayer meetings. Um, or maybe they all prayed for these things after I left. I'm not sure. But look at what Paul prays for here. He doesn't, he, he doesn't address any immediate physical needs. He doesn't address any immediate, immediate physical needs, whether that be people who are sick, whether that be financial circumstances, or even um, even evangelical circumstances in the sense of, I pray that you would be better at reaching the city of Colossae, or be better at reaching your region with the gospel. He doesn't even pray for any specific circumstances. I said two weeks ago that Colossae was actually hit by an earthquake around the time Paul wrote this letter, but that's, whether or not Paul knew of that at this time, probably not, he doesn't pray for any physical needs or circumstances, rather, what is on Paul's heart for this church is spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. He says here, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And just be aware here, that when Paul prays this, um, it actually works better in German. Many of you are German here, I can see. Uh, Paul's not saying for each one of you individually. Paul's praying for you all, you, all, you plural. In German, ihr und euch, the second person plural. So there's, the aspect that Paul's getting at here is a corporate aspect. He's praying for the gathered church together that they and this is something that we really struggle to overcome in our time we are so individualistically uh, shaped in the way we grow up in our society in the way we speak I even visited another church here in Freiburg this morning and at the beginning the call to worship the prayer was and it's it's not a bad prayer as it goes but it's just interesting that we pray this way I pray that the Lord would speak to all of us individually here this morning really what about if the Lord spoke to us all together as a church, and He gave us something to do together as a church? We rarely think of things like that. Um, and again, having lunch today at uh, a couple from church, we—this wasn't my joke—but the guy who I was having lunch with, he's like, he noticed how, oftentimes in the conversations that happen after church, there's this kind of comment that somebody might might say, where um, you know, uh, the sermon, or the, the sermon didn't speak to me today. Or, you know, the worship didn't really pick me up today. And he, his, his joke was like, if someone ever says that to you, you should say, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was all about you. I told him I'd use that joke. <laughs> and I did. But that's kind of the way we think, isn't it? Um, whereas Paul is praying for the whole church together, that together they become mature, that they grow uh, spiritually. And, uh, and so, can, again, can I ask you to be praying that for our church? What do I mean by spiritual maturity? He asks God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. What does Paul mean by the will of God here? I think if we read this text without getting this context in our minds, that we're probably going to be thinking that all of us individually know what God's will is individually for our lives. Okay, so Paul's really—he's—you he's, know—he's got a real pastoral heart. He wants to—he wants Mrs. Smith in Colossae to know what job she should get next year. He's really concerned that Mr. Schmidt uh, know what to study. Um, you know, he wants to know—he he wants us to know who we should marry. All this kind of stuff. Um, and again, that's not to say that God doesn't have this kind of thing on His radar, or that it's not important to Him. But that's not what Paul. Is talking about here. What does Paul mean by the will of God here? Firstly, let me let me just divide up, or or, or just give you a few thoughts on the will of God. Um, God's will. We could almost divide up God's will um, into three parts. Not to say that God has three wills and that they're kind of in conflict with each other, which would be heresy. <laughs> Um, But there are three aspects to God's will that would help us understand that more. So the first one is God has what we call his preceptive will. You probably know the noun precept. It's like a commandment. This is the clear, revealed will of God in Scripture. For example, in the Ten Commandments, this is God's preceptive will. God does not want us to steal, to kill, to commit adultery or idolatry. That's God's will. Uh, we're able to break God's preceptive will. God doesn't want us to steal, but we can steal. So his, will, his perceptive will is breakable. I can kill and commit adultery and steal. I will face the consequences, hopefully, but I can break this kind of God's will, this preceptive will. And indeed, as Christians, we should know God's preceptive will. And that, that is just the invitation to you to cultivate a habit of knowing the scriptures, of reading the scriptures I have been confronted by people in this church and in other churches numerous times in the last three years who are like, I wonder what God's will is for this situation. And it's simply a case of them not having read the Bible where it's very clear what God's will is for this or that situation or for this or that behavior. God's perceptive will. And then there is God's, what we call God's decretive will. Decretive will. Uh, You probably know the noun decree. That is... God has decreed that something should happen. this will can 't be stopped. This is the will of God, that will that that nothing nothing can get in the way, nothing can thwart this aspect of the will of God from coming to fruition and god 's um, decretive will is hidden from us at least in part it's the, it's the, it 's the the will that we see revealed more and more as we go through the scriptures. we see this. And this is what Paul is getting at here in the in the in the letter to the Colossians. We see in Genesis 3:15 for example, after the fall into sin of the first human beings, Adam and Eve, that the Lord God gives them a promise. He says that there will be one born of the woman and he will crush the serpent's head. That's the decretive will. God has made a decree that he will defeat the enemy, he will defeat the serpent. Nothing can stop God's decretive will. Nothing can stop the ultimate victory of God. But that will, at the very beginning, was very, was hidden. It, I mean, Adam and Eve and the generations afterwards, they had they had no idea about what that were, that will would ultimately look like when it was revealed. And indeed, that's the will of God that Paul is talking about here that has now been revealed. Paul is talking here about God's decrees before the creation of the world, in some sense, which are now being revealed in Jesus Christ. That Sunday school correct answer, in Jesus Christ. I like what uh, Doug Moo, he's a uh, New Testament scholar, he writes on this uh, verse, he says this, quote, what Paul has in mind is not some particular or special direction for one's life, as we often use the phrase, God's will, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and for the Colossians. you've got your Bibles there, um, open them up with me to chapter 1. I just want to show you that this is in fact what Paul will unfold in the next few chapters. So start with me in, in this chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 19. Let me just give you that quote again. What Paul has in mind here is a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ. A revelation, again, comes from the, word, word, the verb reveal, to, to uncover, to show forth. It was hidden, now it's being revealed. The revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and for the Colossians. So we're going to see that from verse 15 in chapter 1. I'm not going to read from verse 15. The time's not there. But Paul begins to uncover the the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the supreme one. But we see, for example, in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is an awesome verse, really. It's one of the most awesome verses in the New Testament. This is what's being revealed. Uh, Even even John the Baptist didn't see this. Even the disciples of Jesus during his earthly ministry didn't see it. They didn't even see it after his resurrection. You remember, as he was walking out to the mount to be taken up into heaven at the ascension, his disciples, Acts chapter 1, asked him the question, "'Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?' They still haven't got it. so still haven't been fully clarified in their minds. But now it is being revealed, Paul says, that no, 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 it's not just about Israel. What's now being revealed is the fact that through Jesus Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things. This is God's will that is being now revealed where it has been hidden before. And uh, indeed, Paul will go on to kind of Show us all, um, this will right through from, from chapter 1 in verse 15 right through till chapter 2 in verse 15. Let me give you another taste of it. Um, a few verses later, he says here in verse 25 of chapter 1, I have become uh, its servant, that is the servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you, that is to show you, to put it in front of you, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. What is this mystery? To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And on down the line it goes, specifically right through till chapter 2 and verse 15, that Paul lays out again this revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? What is his relevance for the universe and for the Colossian Christians? And so Paul then says, coming back now to verse 9 and 10, that um, it is wisdom and understanding that are in some sense spiritual, or as the new the NIV puts it, um, that the Spirit gives, that are added here to this revelation of Christ, to this revelation of God's will, that we, that we can both know this revelation, experience this revelation, and live accordingly. I want to spend a few moments, this is what, what I said to you guys at the beginning, this is where I felt convicted, to spend a few moments talking about this. So let's just recap where we've come from, so we're all on the, on the same page here. Paul has said, I'm praying for you guys as a church, that all of you together, that God would continually fill you with the knowledge of his will. That is, that you would be more and more understanding on the same wavelength, on the same frequency, that you get it, that you get what's going on. That this mystery that's been hidden for ages past about how God would, would save the world. That sounds a bit Hollywood, but there it is. But save the world. He's going to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, and he's going to do that through Jesus Christ. How is he going to do that through Jesus Christ? He's going to do that through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. I want you guys as a church to be filled with this knowledge. This is God's will. And what's going to happen is that the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside you as Jesus promised he would and he's going to give you wisdom and understanding that you can appreciate this and then live accordingly. Live accordingly. Now, wisdom and understanding here, just as a a kind of side note, these are what are called the intellectual virtues in Greek thought, and Greek philosophy. So people like Aristotle, in his ethics, he describes wisdom, and the same words in Greek that are used here, wisdom, understanding, and indeed prudence, that that this is the highest, um, the highest intellectual virtue that a person can reach in their lives is to display these things in their lives. What Paul is saying here is that the true source for wisdom and understanding in our lives is the Holy Spirit, that it's from the Spirit that true wisdom and true understanding come. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of understanding. And that is, wisdom and understanding here, that is the ability to discern the truth. Discern means to, to, to divide, really. Divide between truth and falsehood. True and false. That's to discern the truth and then to make good or wise decisions on the basis of that truth. And so the picture we have here of who Paul is praying for, what kind of church he's praying for, is is a mature Christian church um, made up of mature Christians. Other pictures in the Bible are uh, rooted, we we have that that image in Psalm chapter one, Jeremiah seventeen, of this strong tree uh, by the stream, with its roots going down deep. Uh, it bears fruit in season and out. It never withers. It never dies. It's strong. It's wise. Um, this is this is the picture that Paul has here of this church. But again, the church collectively as one body. But that obviously means that the church is the sum of its parts. To have a wise, mature, strong church means we have wise, mature, strong Christians. It's not that when I, when I want to critique our individualism that there's no place for the individual. That's not the case. Rather, we've just drifted on a spectrum too far in the direction of individualism. and We've lost the understanding of who we are as the body of Christ together. But the body of Christ is made up of individual human beings all of us are unique we've all been created in the image of god and it's in our diversity that we fully represent that image so that of the mature the picture we have here is that of the mature christian rooted strong and wise now just can be let me share with you a couple of examples of some of a few things that happened to me recently in my life um A day in the life of a pastor. I don't know. Sounds like a podcast. Now, I mean, these are pretty silly examples, really. Um, I was in a meeting at the church recently, and somebody read a psalm. Somebody said, okay, the Lord is putting a psalm on my mind, uh, and they were able to quote the, 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 the the words of the psalm, but they didn't know where it was from. And there were about 15 or 20 of us there, and then they turned and looked over at me and said, Sam, you should know. Why should I know? Because I'm the pastor. I got it wrong. Oops. Um, that happened recently. Um, there was recently I was in a meeting where you know it was time to pray and yeah, and it was because um, yeah, this was actually and then I was asked to pray again because oh, I'm the pastor. You know, I don't know what people think when they think that whether my prayers are somehow better or more effective. Not sure. Um, That's the second example. And uh, the third example is, recently I was asked a very basic question about Christianity. Again, in a group full of people, yet the question immediately came to me, again, almost as if, okay, you're the pastor, you should know the answer to this. Where am I going with this? I want to say this carefully. It is good to honor pastors and, um, and other Christian leaders. I think October in the United States of America is Pastor Appreciation Month. That's... (laughs) <laughs> it's a typical American thing I don't think we'd have that month in Germany um, it is good to honour pastors and other Christian leaders and um, pastors are called as well as deacons and other leaders in the church they are set apart in a special way to serve that is true and, and uh, where that's a, a deference from honour then that's a lovely thing that, uh, that someone would, would say hey look yeah, you're, the, you're a pastor maybe you'd like to share something with us that's a great thing But the goal of pastors, or the goal with pastors, is not to outsource your religion to professionals. That's not what we're about here uh, as a church. Uh, The mature Christian that Paul talks about is mature both in knowledge and practice. Let me read to you these challenging verses from Hebrews 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3. There we read, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this. He says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant... Is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is, for, food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Just listen to that again. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Apparently, these are all basic things that we should, we should be able to move on from because we've all got it. And, God permitting, we will do so. This is, a, this is almost a rebuke or a correction. And I said to you guys at the start, I feel this message is directed at myself as well. I want to feel the, the word of God uh, hit me here as well to correct, to rebuke, to encourage, wherever that is necessary. But there's a sense here that, that there is a basic understanding of the faith, both in doctrine, what we believe, and in practice, what we do, that we should have and that we should all be moving forward into maturity. It's interesting that, yes... Pastors, for example, are set aside as leaders and teachers in the church in a special way. We have the responsibility for protecting the gospel. But it's interesting here in verse 12 of um, Hebrews 5, it says, By this time you ought all, I can add in the word that is implied, all to be teachers. Yet you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. So I just pray that God would apply that word from Hebrews where any of us might need to hear it this evening. So just coming back again now to Colossians 1, Paul's vision for the Colossian church is, of, is a mature Christian church that is made up of mature Christians who know the will of God. That is, they know God's plan of redemption. They know their doctrine. They know what they believe. They know what they believe. They know the Word of God. They know the Bible. This is not about passing the Bible trivia quiz or beating the high schoolers at the trivia quiz next Friday at the raclette evening. I hope there will be a Bible trivia quiz so I can win it. I'm just kidding. This is not about knowing the Word of God in, in that kind of way, but this is about generally being mature in the faith. This is a person of prayer is a person who has cultivated not as a, an obligation where you're kind of whipping yourself over the, the back every morning I gotta do my prayer but who is generally cultivating a habit of grace. This is a person who can read the signs of the times know what kind of society and what kind of time we're living in. Uh, not, not in one sense as an end times uh, freak uh, which is frankly unhealthy um, really Um, Side note, Jesus says, No man knows the day of my return, and each day has enough troubles for its own, therefore do not worry. So that's not what I mean by reading the signs of the times, but who knows human nature, and knows God's plan of redemption, and knows how God works through history, that there are times of revival, yes, yes, There are times of restoration, yes, but it's not always revival and it's not always restoration. And to behave in this way as if there's always this expectation that we should be here and we're here is just immature. You don't know the signs of the times. You're not mature in that. This is a person who understands evangelism and conversion. How do people become Christians? You've thought about this, that it isn't on account of gimmicks, it isn't on account of tricks, it isn't on account ultimately of good music or, you know, emotional atmosphere. That really it's as Paul writes and as Jesus modelled for us, it's by hearing the truth and believing the truth, that people become Christians not by manipulation and not by praying a sinner's prayer or filling out a card, but by faith in Jesus and by baptism. That's the model that's given to us. Those are the tools that are given to us. Go into all the word and make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to do all that I have commanded you, Jesus Christ. People who are not constantly distracted by this fad or this idea, or this movement, and God knows the Christian world is full of fads and movements and ideas, who doesn't buy into the latest book which comes out and says, we've done it all wrong for the last 500 years, the last 1,000 years, the last 1,500 years, and finally, I've got it. And if you do it this way, it'll work. Ridiculous. Somebody who knows what, what true doctrine is, again, not as a head knowledge thing, but as a, as a, as a, a motivator, a driver to joyful Christian life. And they can discern what we heard about in Hebrews between good teaching and worthless false teaching. that's just like chaff blowing on the wind that can give no hope. A person is mature who is aware of both tradition and reformation. Tradition in the best sense of the word. Tradition just means to hand on. Hand on what we've received. To understand that it's, as Jude writes in his letter, that we have to contend for. We actually have to get active and fight for the faith in Jesus that has been handed down to us by those who've gone before. Today, this first Sunday in November, is the worldwide day of prayer for the persecuted church. Where we remember that there are Christians who are being persecuted and laying their lives down because of the testimony of Jesus. And therefore, that's not just happening today, that's happened in the past. And therefore we have to honour what previous Christians have been willing to lay down their lives for by contending for that faith and not just regarding it as something as intransient and therefore um, not worth fighting for. But also who understand reformation, that we're always looking for the Spirit of God to be reforming and breathing new life into our fellowships and into our lives. Basically, a mature Christian is one who is aware, first and foremost, of their identity in Christ. That before everything else, before being a student or a worker or a father or a mother or a child or even a man or a woman, first and foremost, in Christ, we are an ambassador for him. We represent him. We're a member of his body, the church. That's the... That's what gives us fundamentally our identity of who are we, who am I, Christian. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking that the question I wanted to challenge myself with, looking back on my last 10 years of life and challenge maybe you with tonight, is are you willing to be formed as a Christian, are you really willing to be formed, corrected, and shaped as a Christian, as a mature Christian? As Paul would have the Colossian church be formed, corrected, and shaped in accordance with the revelation of the will of God, that is the redemption through Jesus Christ. And I, I do see this as one of the great challenges in the church today. Um, there is a lack of true spiritual formation. We are, there are so many you can go here, there, and everywhere. You can go to this internet site, uh, you buy that book, and there there are so many voices clamouring at you to tell you that you need this or you need that. Um, there's so much rubbish out there too, uh, guys. But I can't go into that right now. That there's there's a there's this there is lacking a quietness and a silence and a solitude uh, before God and with the disciples in the church where he has placed you at this time of your life, that you're growing in maturity, being formed as a Christian in the fellowship he's put you, um, at this time of life that he's put you in, by having that silence and solitude to actually listen to what he's teaching you. Not only through the silence and solitude and through reading his word, but also through the people he's actually put in your lives. Now, you might already be there, and if you are, then may God bless you there. But for many of us, we are in the echo chamber here. I think it's a great challenge today, true spiritual formation. Do you trust Jesus through his ministers in the church to form you in accordance with the scripture and with true Christian faith? And that's what I pray, and I pray that would be more and more here at Calvary Freiburg, at Church at Five, by the grace of God, a place of spiritual formation. And true discipleship. That is not truncated discipleship, truncated means shortened, narrowed, which focuses only on the practicals of life, which are important. But it has no true place for theological or biblical knowledge, knowing about God. You know, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, everyone's heard of the Eastern Orthodox Church? Only three people have ever been called theologian in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's funny when people tell me here that they're studying theology, that they're going to be a theologian. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Um, Eastern Orthodox Church has seen fit to bestow the title theologian only on three people. The first one was the, the Apostle John because he was the disciple who Jesus loved. And when you read the Apostle John's gospel and his letters, you sense the deep intimacy and love he had for Jesus Christ and for God. That's what makes him a theologian. This is not head knowledge. And for those of you taking notes, the two others in the Eastern Orthodox tradition are St. Gregory of Nazianzus and Simeon, the new theologian. But what I wanted to draw attention there to was not some strange Greek names, but the idea that a true Theologian, or true theology, is about knowing God, but knowing Him intimately, not truncating the Christian life to a few practical things that I need to do in my daily routine. And I'm happy with my level of knowledge of God that I have, and I'm not really interested in growing there anymore. So I pray that would be a place here of true formation, true spiritual formation and, and discipleship, a place of true worship. Second point here in what it is to be a mature church, a place of true worship, um, this draws on what I just said a moment ago about those Eastern Orthodox, that is that we truly know who God is. To worship God, you have to know who he is. Imagine for a moment that, you'd had, that you, we, you didn't know anything about the Bible, you knew nothing about what, how God had revealed himself in history, and yet you were supposed to come here and worship him. Very difficult. Very difficult. It would be very difficult to worship him. True worship relies on knowing who God is. And I want to encourage you there, we have to know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet on the other hand, because we know who God is, that he is the Almighty, the Infinite, the Never-Ending One, we have to realize that we can never fully know or comprehend God. He will always transcend our knowledge and our understanding. But... the the um, the, the, what, we, what we do with that is not to give up and be satisfied with knowing less, but it's to understand that God invites us in all eternity to constantly and ever grow in the knowledge of him. Just think about that for a minute. You will never fully comprehend God because God is infinite. That means that in all eternity you will always grow in the knowledge of Of God, There will always be more of him to know, to treasure, and to enjoy. That's the the way of maturity as a church. True worship. Understanding that if we pour out our hearts to God in worship and claim that we desire him, that we must keep our vows. That this must be backed up by how we live and how we think. And that's Paul's prayer here. That the church together be filled with the knowledge of God's will namely his redemptive plan in Christ, which is going to be laid out for us in this great little book, and that we'll live together with wisdom and understanding in light of what God is doing through Jesus Christ and for what God is doing through Jesus Christ, investing all of our lives into this great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we we read it, I think, in the, the letters to Peter, where... We're told about this revelation of God's redemption, redemptive plan in Christ, that even angels, sort of people from redemptive history, people like the Old Testament saints, Abraham, etc., they longed to see this day. Even angels longed to see it, but it wasn't revealed to them. But to you it's been revealed. Unto you, unto you has come the fullness of the ages. Maturity, that's what Paul wants. Is like, guys, realize this. May the Spirit give you all wisdom and understanding that this changes the way you live there, you live your lives. And that is... um, Let me invite the worship team back up now, I think. Sorry, just to bring you out of your reverie. We are, in fact, out of time, and I'm pleased that I'm not going to go on and talk about the next parts of this passage. I'll leave a life worthy of the Lord to next Sunday. But this knowledge, this maturity, uh, is not... It includes abstract knowledge. Knowing more about who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is abstract in a certain sense. It's not necessarily going to help you with your Monday morning routine. But it is transforming knowledge. That's the key. It is transforming knowledge. As you understand, let's just take the example there as we draw to a close. As you understand that who, who is our God? Our God, when we think of God, when you think of that word God... I don't want you to think, as we do in our culture, as our language teaches us to do, whether it's German or English, of the God of the philosophers, the first mover. The word God in our culture is an impersonal term. That's not who we should think of when we hear that word. We should think when we hear that word God, the first thing that should come into our mind is a father always loving his son and pouring out his spirit upon us. Sending his son to redeem us, that is to, to, to... buy us free from slavery to darkness and sin to draw us into his kingdom into his family that we might have a relationship with him that we're actually invited into this divine life that we can stand next to jesus christ as his brother as his friend and just like jesus i've said this before has in all eternity past spoken to the father with that term of loving endearment abba we too may say abba father that's what we need to be thinking. That's how abstract knowledge about who God is can change the way we think, can transform us. And that will transform the way ultimately we live our lives here because when we're talking to other people about the gospel and what we believe, we are not confronting them with a, a sort of a moral demand, but we're inviting them, as we read before, to be part of this redemption of all things, whether things on heaven, in heaven or on earth. So it's a transforming Knowledge. So let me draw it to a conclusion now, and just I think I'm going to pray in a minute. But but just be taking that message with you uh, this evening. Um, it's a message again that I really felt was strong in my heart for myself. Uh, that we be aware of who we are as Christians. We're part of the body of Christ, and Paul's prayer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That is what He is doing right now in the world that is reconciling to himself all things through Jesus Christ. That we'd be trusting the Spirit, that he would be giving us all wisdom and understanding to be able to understand this and live it out. And let us come to church week in, week out with that understanding and being willing to be formed to maturity. All right, let's let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just entrust this message uh, to you now. I pray that um, I pray that your will be done here in our hearts, and our minds uh, this evening, as we take what we've heard uh, this evening. And while I do pray that yes, you would speak to us as a congregation here at church at five, and as a church here at Calvary Chapel, but you would also show each one of us individually where you are calling us to be um, to be astounded new to, to, to fall down anew in wonder at who you are and what your will is. Your will for reconciliation, for freedom from darkness and sin, for being transferred into the kingdom of light, that we would be walking in lives worthy of the Lord, each one of us and also together as a church. And I just trust that... Um, Holy Spirit, the word that has been sent out tonight will not return empty, but will accomplish that for which you purpose it. I pray, Holy Spirit, now that you would animate our fellowship now as we rise to sing, that you would give us true worship, that we would worship you this evening now in spirit and in truth, and that you would bless the fellowship that waits for us in a few moments' time. Amen.